So two weeks ago, we began a new series on a, on a book of the Bible. Do you remember what book it is that we're studying? First Peter. Good. Y'all do pay attention. This is good. Um, I, I'm excited about this series. I hadn't had a chance to really dig into First Peter too much until this week because I'd been on vacation and a couple other folks had preached. Um, we had Dr. Reese, who preached a couple weeks ago, introduced us to this book. Uh, she's done a lot of research and um, helped write a common, write, written a commentary on this book. I mean, she's got a lot of knowledge on First Peter, um, which was awesome to have uh, the honor and, and privilege of her being here. And then last week, Christina um, picked up right where she left off. And so when Christina and I were looking at the what they call the Revised Common Lectionary, we've used the lectionary as a guide for our sermon series uh, throughout the last few years. And it's been really nice because it's kind of forced us into preaching on some things that maybe you normally wouldn't hear preached on in church, you know, because if it's just one pastor or a couple of pastors just picking whatever is on their heart for that particular week, they're often going to pick very similar things every week, you know, because uh, I've got my own things that I really like to talk about. Christina has her things. And so if it was just us kind of picking those texts, then we may not get really a wide range of looking at kind of the scope of Scripture. And so I was really excited when I looked at the Revised Common Lectionary for um, this time after Easter because it had like six weeks in a row of readings from First Peter. And I had the thought that like, you know, we haven't spent much, I haven't spent much time in First Peter. We've really never done any sermons in First Peter at Embrace. And so I thought, man, let's just do a series on it. This will be a great uh, learning opportunity. And this is really how I like to approach preaching that I like to pick ideas and scriptures that aren't as familiar to me because it's more exciting for me that way to preach on those things because I get a chance to learn and to research and dig into things that maybe I normally wouldn't study. And I kind of have a rule when I preach that if I'm not learning something new from my sermon or if I'm not being inspired or challenged in some new way, then I'm not going to preach it because if, if it's not inspiring or exciting to me, then how can I expect it to be exciting to you all, right? And so it's been really neat at Embrace because I've been on a journey of learning and growing and learning all these new things, and then you all have been on that journey along with me and, and our other preachers and teachers here at the church. Now, I imagine many of you all are like me, that you maybe aren't very familiar with the book of First Peter, um, that you maybe have not spent a lot of time studying this particular letter. Am I right? I mean, I imagine we don't have a lot of people who have heard lots of sermons or read a lot about this particular book. It's, uh, it's kind of like tucked back at the back of the Bible, and so it's easy to kind of miss and overlook. Um, you know, there are a couple of good verses from First Peter that are really good for, like, memory verses that I'm sure you've heard uh, in the past, and you probably will know when we get to those particular verses. But I think it's mostly ignored. Uh, Joel Green, uh, a great New Testament uh, scholar, he called it the junk mail of the New Testament, and, and it kind of gets filtered into the junk mail. We're like, well, it's not, not really for the inbox, right? We don't want to spend too much time looking at this particular letter, and, it, and it's been kind of stuck in the back of the Bible after all of Paul's letters. And so if you want to know how the New Testament's arranged, it's really not all that complicated. You have the four Gospels first, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John's at the end because John is kind of different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Then you have the book of Acts, which is about the early church. And then after that, it's all of Paul's letters, like all in a row. 
and they're arranged in no particular order, only from like longest to shortest, basically, all right? And so it doesn't mean Romans is more important than, you know, Ephesians. Um, it's just that's how they laid it out. And then after that, you have other letters from the Bible that are written by people that we may don't know who wrote those books, or they're not written by Paul. And so since Peter's after Paul, and people love to preach on Paul's letters, then he kinda, he's kind of like hiding in the shadow of Paul a little bit. And so we're going to bring Peter out into the light, out of the shadows this morning, uh, so that we can get a little bit more into his book. Now, I just want to be honest with you all. There, I think there's good reason why people avoid 1 Peter. It's not just because it's in the back. It's not just because it's living in the shadow of Paul. If you've read 1 Peter throughout this, uh, maybe you decide I'm going to read through it or something, you'll notice that there are are some difficult things in the book of 1 Peter that are hard to understand. Like, there's good reason why preachers avoid 1 Peter, because some of the texts, like, I, I don't want to preach on. The one for this morning, is, is that one of the ones I never wanted to have to preach on? Yet, this is what we find ourselves looking at today. And so I get why people don't want to read it. The biggest issue that I have with the book of 1 Peter is that it seems like Peter advocates this kind of like hierarchy of relationships in society where some people have authority and then others are just kind of in a position where they're supposed to be ruled or, or, or they're supposed to submit to kind of those who are in authority above them. I'll give you some examples. He tells his audience to submit to the governing authorities. That is one of the passages. And now that is hard for those of us who have learned to value protest and like strategic non-cooperation like Martin Luther King and others have been engaged in, and, and, and those of us who see the value and the biblical value uh, of protest, hearing people say submit to governing authorities is kind of like, uh, what if they're not good governing authorities? We're just supposed to submit, right? We, get, we have questions about that. One of the hardest ones uh, is that slaves are challenged to submit to their masters in First Peter, which clearly is troublesome in our world today. And it would be troublesome then, I imagine. Wives are asked to submit to their husbands, which for people like me uh, who believe in equality in the marriage relationship, this is hard to understand, right? He also calls younger folks to submit to their elders. And a lot of younger folks don't want to submit to their elders. And so you can understand why that would be a hard one uh, to read. And all at the same time, Peter seems to be advocating for a gospel that destroys hierarchies and creates freedom and equality. And so you can see, like, why this letter might be hard for people to understand and accept. These are the kind of passages that a lot of us just ignore, and we, we just like, oh, I'm not going to really pay attention to that one, you know. But this is where we're at. This is what we're studying. Much of this letter feels kind of out of touch to us, to the ways that we see things in 21st century American democracy. There are times... I want Peter to say things that Peter doesn't say. <laughs> Have you ever had that experience when you read the Bible? I wish they just said this outright, very specifically. Well, he doesn't. He doesn't say the things I want him to say. And our text for today is a perfect example. When I got back from vacation, I uh, looked at the text for this week, and I had the thought, really? I have this one. I don't want to preach this one. <laughs> But here we are. And so let me read it for you. This is from 1 Peter 2, starting at verse 18 
through verse 25. And I'll tell you, verse 18 is actually left out of the lectionary reading, but you cannot understand the rest of it without understanding verse 18. You can see why maybe they chose to leave out verse 18, because it's the very first one, and it's a hard one to accept. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Now, do you see what I mean about this passage and me not wanting to preach on it? It's uncomfortable, right? It's an uncomfortable part of Scripture, particularly for those first verses, right? I really don't like that the Bible tells slaves to submit to masters. I really wish Peter had just said, slavery is evil, it is wrong, and we're all going to work to end it and eradicate it from the world. I wish Peter had said that, but he didn't. And that's a hard truth about the Bible. But I think one thing we have to remember about the Bible is that these letters were written 2,000 years ago. That is a long time, all right? Think about in our country, the history of our country is a few hundred years old. Think about going back 2,000 years. And it was written in a land that is thousands of miles from here in a culture totally different from our own. One thing that I have said many times over the last couple of years is that we must respect that distance between us and the biblical world. We are a long ways removed from them by time and by distance and by culture. You, we can't expect the biblical writers to be where we are today. They were human, just like you and me. There was a partnership in the way the Bible was written. It was spirit-inspired, but these were human beings trying to make sense of the world around them and figure out how Jesus had transformed everything and what Jesus meant to them in their moment. And then we're trying to take truths from that and apply it to today. I wish that all Christians in the early church had ended the practice of slavery immediately after Jesus, right? That they just said, we're done with this and end it once and for all. But it took time. And, and too much time, you could argue, for a critical mass, enough Christians to come to accept that slavery is evil and against God's purposes in this world. And so as we approach this text, we need to respect that distance, all right? Another thing I want you to understand, when we encounter, encounter challenging texts that don't seem to fit in that larger story of Jesus and salvation like this, where it's like, this doesn't seem to, to, to jive with what Jesus was about and what he said. I've learned that it's important to really lean in and ask some, ask some deeper questions, all right? 
If we, we're going to find things in the Bible that are confusing to us. And that's our moment to say, okay, well, let's try to learn more. Let's ask more questions. Let's talk to people who've studied this. Let's uh, really do some work to try to understand what's going on here. And one thing that's been very helpful for me, and I've said this before, is that when you, don't you feel like something is confusing in the Bible, we need to pay attention to the historical context. Like what was going on in that time in which these letters were written. We need to understand that when we read, particularly the letters in the New Testament, like starting at Romans and going all the way basically through the end, we are reading somebody else's mail, right? We are peeking in. We are peering into somebody else's communication. There was an author to these letters, and there were people who received these letters. And they were not originally written to us, all right? It's impossible, right? We are living a long time after this. These were written to real-life communities and people in those communities. And this is mail that we're reading that was written 2,000 years ago in a culture that's thousands of miles removed from our own. I want you to imagine where in your home or wherever you live that, that you discovered like something in your house. If my wife discovered this, she would be so excited. That you found letters that were written to the owner of that house or whoever lived in that apartment like 75 years ago. And you found these like things from history, and you're like, oh, I found these really cool letters that were written to the people who lived in this home before me, and they're like 75 years old. This is so cool. Like, you don't know who these people are. All you have is these letters that were written to them. Now, if you started reading through those letters, you're going to be a little bit confused about what's going on, probably, right? I mean, you're going to be able to pick up on some stuff. Well, maybe they had this kind of relationship. Maybe they went on this trip, and this is what they're referencing, but you're going to be very confused about a lot of the stuff that they're talking about because it was written 75 years ago and you don't know who the people are. You don't know what was going on in their lives and you may not have any idea what was even going on in America 75 years ago, right? If you don't know much about history. And so you would be a little confused because you don't know the context. Well, when we're reading the New Testament letters, we're reading letters not from 75 years ago, 2,000 years ago, and from a culture very different from our own. So we have to understand the context. And sometimes we're not going to have any idea what these letters are talking about unless we understand the context. And this is especially true of 1 Peter. We need to ask some questions. And these are the types of questions we, we need to ask. Who wrote this letter? Who was it written to? When was the letter written? What was going on in their communities when this letter was written? Why was this letter written in the first place? These kinds of questions will really help us to make sense of what's being said in these verses. And so as I read these verses for myself today, I had to ask the question. I had to ask myself the question, is Peter condoning slavery? Because that'd be pretty messed up if that's true. Or is something else going on here that I'm missing? And uh, I'm not going to be able to answer these questions fully this morning because those are very deep. There's a lot of takes on this passage, as you can imagine. But what I hope to do is give you some things to think about and chew on today. So just to be honest, as a, as a white, privileged man in America, like, I have very little understanding of slavery. Okay, I've studied slavery. I have read lots about it. I learned in school, and I've learned even more as an adult. But... I'm still, like, it's still something that's mostly up in my mind. 
I don't understand what the experience of unjust suffering is like. I've experienced some suffering that is not just, but I don't understand what it's like day in and day out to have to experience suffering that is unjust, that is wrong, this oppressive kind of life to have to live in. I don't understand that. There are a lot of takes, like I said, on this passage, and I'm not claiming to know exactly how to look at it, but today I'm going to prioritize and lift up the work of two black scholars that I read, um, Dennis Edwards and Shively Smith. And the reason that I want to lift up their work, because there are a lot of white men like me that write about the Bible, okay? There's more than you could ever imagine. And they have great things to say. But today I want to highlight these black scholars because for me, for black Americans as I think about it, like slavery is more than just a concept to study or something in the mind is something they feel and experience deep in their souls. And so there's a lot that we could say about the historical context for today. But the most important fact I want to share with you today is that this letter of 1 Peter was written from the margins of society. It was written by a person on the margins, and it was written to people on the margins. These folks were not in the land-owning class They weren't in a ruling class. They were not the governors and the leaders in their community. These were folks who lived on what some have called the underside of society. They were scraping and fighting each day in order to survive. Now, this is interesting because if you read 1 Peter, you're going to notice that there's a lot of talk about suffering. In upcoming uh, lectionary texts, there will be talk of more suffering. And, And you can imagine 1 Peter or the writer of 1 Peter, which is believed by most to be Peter himself, the apostle, that Peter would talk about suffering because his people were experiencing a lot of suffering, you know? And so that makes sense, right? There were a lot of suffering going on in that world. You know, it's, it's interesting to me because often literature from history, at least the stuff I've read in the history books, was written mostly by people on, in powerful positions, It was written by people in powerful positions, and a lot of the stories that they're telling in these works are about other kind of powerful people, right? They're about kings and about people with money and wealth and land. And and it's interesting to me and pretty fascinating that that's not the case for the Bible. By and large, the Bible was written by people who were on the margins for people on the margins. What a fascinating text, Uh, a collection of texts that we have right here is our sacred text for our community. So... During those days that the book of 1 Peter was written, it was common for early Christians to experience random acts of violence. They were marginalized people, and they were often victims of random acts of violence, victims of public shaming. We've talked about that in the past, where there were ways in that honor-shame culture, like if you were publicly shamed, it, it would be really bad for you and your family and your business and whatever you're trying to do to get by. They were often victims of economic exploitation. Sometimes they were singled out and targeted for their beliefs because of their strange practices that they had, like taking the Lord's Supper and uh, having love feast is what they call it, where they would come and gather around. People misunderstood the Christians, and, and they would often single them out and target them. They had this different way of living in the world. The Roman government grew increasingly over time suspicious of the Christians, and it wasn't uncommon for powerful people just to pop into a community and pull people out and abuse them, harass them, arrest poor Christians just to show their force and just to show that they could. 
This is a really, really hard existence to live in. And most of us in this room do not understand what it's like to live in that kind of community. One thing Dr. Reese pointed out is that these churches who received this letter from Peter, they had a large amount of slaves and then women with unbelieving husbands in their churches. And, and I think this is pretty cool, actually, because it shows that the early church truly was reaching out to the most vulnerable people in their communities. Because if you're talking about vulnerable people, women were very vulnerable in the ancient world, and slaves were extremely vulnerable in the ancient world. Neither had much power, and much of their life was ordered and ruled by other people. Yet, these folks with little to no power, who struggled each and every day, they found something beautiful in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel told them that they were children of God deeply loved and valued. The gospel said that these walls and hierarchies that our world makes actually don't matter in God's eyes and that the gospel has the power to tear them down, that they were actually equal to everybody else and they had dignity and they had power. And so you can imagine when they found this new community of people, this Christian community of people who accepted them and loved them and treated them as an equal sibling in Christ, not as a slave or a wife of little value or worth, that they would have been overjoyed by finding this kind of community. And Peter spends much of his letter talking about that community, the Christian household, how we ought to relate to one another within the Christian community with equality and love. However, the hard reality was that these same slaves and these same women with unbelieving husbands were still subject to the rule of the head of the household in which they lived out in the real world, right? In the Christian household, they found love and equality and dignity, but at home, they were still under the rule of other people. And so Peter spends a lot of time in his letter addressing that other reality how to live out there in the world where life is tough. And it's not that simple just to change things. They weren't going to over, overturn the system of slavery just in their tiny little church community, at least not very easily. And so they had to figure out how we're going to live out in that harsh world in which we live where there's little possibility to change. And that's not a reality I've had to experience in my life. I think we need to think of First Peter it is a letter of encouragement, but I think even more so it is a letter of strategy. How will you navigate the harsh reality that you face each and every day of your life? How are you going to survive out there in the world when you have no power? When you're at your lowest moment, how can you stay committed to Jesus? It's really a letter of survival. I want you to imagine Peter and, and we'll just, we'll accept that this, uh, the author of this letter is the Apostle Peter. Peter, in his old age, is giving practical wisdom to people that he loved dearly. I imagine Peter is kind of this elder in the community, and he's just like, yeah, I love you, and I want you all to live. I want you to survive. I don't want you to bring unnecessary attention to yourselves or unnecessary hardship or pain. I want you all to make it. And so he wanted to try and help them make the best of these really hard circumstances. I mean, think about it. Peter had seen a lot. Peter was that brash young man 
who wanted to call down fire from heaven on a Samaritan village because they disrespected Jesus. Peter was tough dude. Peter was packing heat back then and had a sword he was carrying around. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, when they tried to arrest Jesus, he pulled it out and cut off a guard's ear. Jesus was not someone that just let people push him around, right? Peter had, he was a, he was a you know, a pretty courageous guy um, growing up, a little bit out there. But over time, I imagine Peter saw that the path of that violent retribution doesn't really lead to anywhere good for him or his people. He was older and wiser now, and he wanted these young churches to survive. And he knew that the slaves in his churches were the most vulnerable people in his community. And they were also the most courageous people in his community. And so he addressed them first in this household code kind of thing that he lays out. And, and it's interesting because he says the most words to the slaves. And I believe he does that because he knows they need a lot of encouragement. They need some help navigating this situation that they're in. I want you all to think about the fact that he addressed the slaves directly and spent the most time talking to them. This is revolutionary in itself. Often in ancient household codes, because um, this was a common thing in the ancient world, only the man of the house might be addressed. And, and often told how the man is supposed to rule their house well. How the man rules the wife and the children and slaves. Yet Peter addresses the slaves directly and he doesn't even address the masters. Which tells me that there were slaves in his churches, but there were no masters in his churches. And he counseled the slaves to not seek retribution against their masters, but to endure the suffering. Now, he does not condone slavery. He actually says that it is un you are receiving unjust treatment. But instead, he offers counsel as to how Christian slaves could survive in the midst of an unjust and evil system. And I imagine he was also concerned about the Christian community as a whole. If they acted in ways that brought about extra attention or scrutiny, their lives could literally be on the line. People could show up at their doors and do harm to them. So they had to figure out how to make it. They had to make some accommodations. They had to navigate when we step up, when we speak up, or when we be quiet. It was all about survival for them. This is a strategy of Christian living and survival. There are challenging decisions that they have to make each and every day. And there are decisions we have to make in our world, when we're going to be different, when we're going to speak up, and also when we're going to accommodate and when we're going to lay low. And this is the harsh reality the early church had to face each and every day. And what we're reading in 1 Peter really is internal communication among the Christians about how they're going to navigate this harsh reality and also stay true to Jesus in the process, which was not all that simple to figure out. As Shively Smith points out, this is something that marginalized communities must navigate every single day and at many points throughout history. You know, I listened to Drew Hart. He's a, another black Christian scholar. We read a book of his called Trouble I've Seen quite a few years ago here at the church. But I heard him talking and commenting on this passage. And he reflected on his experience growing up as a young black man learning how to drive in America. His parents gave him very specific instructions on how he was going to act if he got pulled over by the police. He said, keep both hands on the wheel, speak calmly, no sudden movements, absolutely no disrespect to the officers. Do what they tell you to do. If they ask you to get out of the car, you do what they tell you to do when you comply. 
it is unjust and, and certainly against God's will that black men in America have to show respect to a system of policing that often kills them. Yet Drew Hart's parents loved him, and they wanted him to live. And so they gave him his counsel and advice. As an adult, uh, Drew recalled a time when he saw a black man pulled over by the police. And, and he said he just kind of, he was with his family and his children were with him. And he said he just stood there and he watched for a little while. And y'all may have done this before yourself to try to say, like, I want them to know there is a set of eyes looking at them right now. So nothing can, you know, let, maybe a little less likely something will go down. And so as he was watching to try to support whoever this person was, his wife commented to him, he's like, Drew, is this the example that you want to set for your children? That they should stay and watch a rest like this and potentially get themselves in a dangerous situation. And Drew acknowledged that tension that he felt. He wanted his kids to be bold and to stand up for what was right. But he also, at the same time, didn't want his kids getting themselves into trouble and, and being the victim of something awful themselves. And so he had to deal with that harsh reality that so many people have to face each and every day. I don't believe that Peter's instructions to slaves or to wives, for that matter, are universal rules for all to follow. But they are instead words of wisdom that were given to people in very specific situations who were facing impossible challenges. How were they going to stay true to Jesus and at the same time make smart choices to stay alive and protect their communities? Now, though I do, don't think that those uh, instructions are universal about the slaves, I do think that there is something universal that Peter's talking about here. He reminds the slaves of Jesus. And the fact that Jesus endured unjust suffering just like they did. And I imagine he's bringing up Peter or Jesus and, and mostly just to, to encourage them that, like, you're not alone in this. And frankly, the way you're living in this world with courage and staying true to Jesus in spite of these impossible odds, you are more like Jesus than anybody else in our community. And I think that's many reasons why he addresses them the most, because he's holding them up as an example of people who are truly doing the work to figure out how to live like Jesus in this world. And so he encourages them to say that Jesus endured suffering like you. You know, one feature of 1 Peter is that he doesn't talk about the death of Jesus very much. Churches today, we talk about the death of Jesus a lot, which we should. But he also, he spends more time talking about the suffering of Jesus. And for them to know that Jesus suffered too could help them feel less alone. And even give them more courage to press forward. You know, Christina and I were talking about this passage on Thursday. And I, I was trying to figure out, like, how this applies to our lives. And, and I think that there are many ways that it can apply to our lives. But as we talked about it, we, we kind of realized that, that often we fail to honor and to see the Christians across our world who have to navigate these kinds of realities each and every day of their lives. And so this morning, what I want to do is just give honor to them. And I, and I want to spend some time in silence and praying for these folks as well. It didn't take me long to think of, even just off the top of my head this morning, um, as I'm going about my, my business to get ready for church, to think of so many different communities across our world who are having to navigate these kinds of realities each and every moment of the day. I think right now of, of Christians in, in Sudan right now and what they're going through there, and they're trying to 
to, to remain faithful to Jesus, but also trying just to keep their families alive as the violence rages in their country. I'm thinking about in Ukraine as, as many people are trying to stay, Christians trying to stay true to Jesus and his call to love their enemies, yet at the same time, a foreign power has come in and just wreaked havoc and destroyed their country and taken so many lives. I think of uh, Palestinian Christians right now who are living in the West Bank and in Gaza and, and trying to navigate the reality of loving both their Jewish and Muslim neighbors and figuring out how to survive in a place that is violent and, and incredibly difficult for them to get by. I think of people here in our own country, a lot of my immigrant friends who have to navigate the reality, do I, do I even drive at night because they, they're worried about getting, get, getting pulled over? potentially getting deported. I know plenty of folks who want to speak up and, and try to change the immigration system, but they have to navigate, well, if I speak up, it can bring attention to my family, and I don't want my family to be harassed by immigration enforcers or anything like that. And so there are these realities that people have to face all the time. And I, I'm sitting here thinking in my own life, I don't have to think about this very often at all. So we ought to give honor and respect, and we ought to pray for those folks in our, all across our world who are having to navigate this stuff each and every day. And we also need to think about how we can be in solidarity with them. And, and that's a harder question to answer because that's going to take a lot of sacrifice. That's going to take a lot of grit and a lot of courage to figure out where we enter into some of these struggles with other folks and provide um, as much a accompaniment we can in, in a journey that many people are facing that we can't maybe fix a situation, but we can come alongside folks and join them in their journey to try to see their lives be better and see more freedom in this country and we're living in today. And so I'm just going to take a moment of silence before we take communion in, in order to honor uh, these Christians across our world who are staying true to Jesus in the midst of impossible situations of pain and suffering. People who have to make difficult decisions about how they will survive and keep moving forward, all the while staying true to their faith and commitment to Jesus. So let's take a moment of silence now.